You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk, the literature corner. And this is our first author interview for the year, unless I'm forgetting what we did in the other versions of this um, slot in the last two weeks. I think it's actually our first proper sit-down conversation with an author. And today we're looking at the book Heartbreaker, Christian Barnard and the first heart transplant written by James Brent Steyan. James, thank you so much for joining us in our Cape Town studios. Hi, Eusebius. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. It is only a pleasure, my friend, and um, congratulations on this book. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, I want to start because I have a morbid fascination with writers, (laughs) not just their subjects. And what you have done very well in this book, which I think must be very difficult when one writes biography, is not to gratuitously insert yourself into the book. But of course, I can ask you gratuitous questions about yourself. (laughs) Why the fascination with this incredibly colorful, interesting South African? I think I, when I write and when I read, I like a good story. Mm. And uh, this book out of the blue kind of hit me one day on the highway here in Cape Town. They were building the new Netcare Christian Barnard Hospital. And as uh, Captonians are unfortunately sometimes, well, often happens, we're stuck on the highway. So I'm looking at this hospital and I realize I don't know much about Christian Barnard really (laughs) beyond uh, he did a first heart transplant and uh, there was a number of uh, interesting relationships and he came from uh, the Karoo. That's literally what I knew about a year and a half, uh, almost two years ago. And I started reading up for my own benefit, curious, interested. And I was just astounded by the story. It was just the story that pulled me into this one. Let's start at the beginning of that story, because once you dug into it, you found that his family and where they had settled, very interesting parents that he had, both mom and dad, um, Adam in charge of the missionary church. And Christian, not exactly born with the silver, let alone a gold spoon in his mouth, but growing up in the dusty streets of Beaufort West. Paint us a picture and tell us a little bit about his family. Yeah, you, you got... Uh you got a guy who's from the Ni- from the Nisner forests, and anybody who knows a bit about the Leon Matias books on the subject of forest dwellers in the 1800s, 1700s, I mean beyond dirt poor. These people were uneducated. They were they never even left the forest. And here, Adam Barnard, who's Christian Barnard's father, one day decides to leave the family. He's one of eight children, and he goes. Um, and he joins the Salvation Army where he works for a number of years uh, administering to people that need it and he gets falls ill, uh, leaves, has to leave the Salvation Army and he becomes a, uh, a missionary where, and he is sent to Beaufort West. Um, now, he's paid about, I think the amount was about 20 rand a month. Uh, he's not even paid the salary of a full duomini. He was a missionary for the Enkekerk. Uh And his missionary... His, mis- his missionary work is amongst the colored community. And being a white family in a town like uh, Beaufort West, especially at the time, that was uh, severely frowned upon. So the family, first off, they weren't well off. And secondly, they were quite, uh, they, there was quite a lot of prejudice against them. And what's interesting about the way you depict the family and the fact that, of course, you have already segregationist policies in terms of the design of the city there, where they fit in. It's not like mom and dad are 
part of formal struggles against colonialism and apartheid eventually, but rather that there seems to be a natural empathy that the dad especially has for people who do not look like himself. And those are early values that get role modeled into, into, you know, into their children's um, moral compasses. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating, and they're living in the middle of the town. So on the one side, almost you could say the town split in two by the Khamka River, which is actually just a dry riverbed most of the time. Mm. Uh, on the one side of the town, you've got the wealthier, well-to-do, bigger houses, uh, all the big infrastructure. On the other side, you've got the the coloured community on the outskirts, almost three to one. Uh, numbering colored versus the white community and uh, this guy in the middle and a hundred meters from his missionary church which is very basic you've got the big white Enkirkerk building which everybody who's been through Beaufort West and the N1 will have noticed uh, and and they, they administer to the white people under the Enkirkerk Domini and hundred meters down the road the same main road uh, is the missionary church where you've got Adam Barnard who's administering to the to the colored folk and uh, uh, it, it's just a fascinating picture. Just and and the pressures. I mean, the community would ostracize these people because Adam Barnard. I mean, the stories are there's there's a number of them, and Adam Barnard and his children they wouldn't be greeted in town by the majority of the white population. Yeah. Uh, they would say, you know, we're not going to shake the hands of a guy who shakes the hands of colored people. Uh, it's as petty and stupid as that. Mm. You try, obviously the main focus is not to give full biographical sketches of each of the family members, but one cannot, a little bit like a conversation we've just had in the middle hour of the show, one cannot help but draw the connections between family life and some of the behavioral traits of the adult Dr. Chris Barnard, including mm. relations uh, with women. Mm. And um, I want to pause here over two things that struck me in your depiction of uh, the relationship between his parents. The first is how incredibly hardworking his dad was. Obviously, mom is also very hardworking looking after the kids. But she's a bit of a disciplinarian and instilling them an incredible competitiveness, including for academic excellence. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I, I always think there's context to, to people and, uh, and backgrounds important. And dipping into it a bit, I obviously can't put any everything in the, in the book, but uh, I, I tried to, to to understand a bit of the psycho psychological background of Chris Barnard. You know, how could he have three women who loved him so much, married all of them, always claimed he loved them so much, but yet he. He, he he cheated on them, you know, quite often and quite regularly, mm -hmm. without it seems seemingly feeling guilty about it. Yeah, and having a look at at the way that his his mother and his father brought them up, but he, but particularly his mother, because his dad was, I think, so involved with the community, there was not a lot of time, perhaps, for the for the for the boys teaching them about you know how to treat women, how to be with women, etc. And yeah, you've got the mother, strict strict disciplinarian. She's lost two babies. And I think that had a big blow to her psych psych psychologically. So she was probably overprotective, didn't allow them out the house, didn't allow them to have women or girlfriends. Um, just very strict telling them they've got to shine, they've got to work hard, there's nothing a second best. The boys would have to uh, to clean the house, Chris Barnard would have to polish the wooden floors, and it was never good enough. And he you know, even though he was her favorite uh, in later years. Mm. 15 minutes after 11, we're telling you, Snippets from the book Heartbreaker, 
Christian Barnard and the First Heart Transplant with author James Brent Stein, who's written a fantastic story about a very colorful and incredible South African accomplished, revered, loved, hated by many. And we're going to take a bit of a break, and then we're going to talk about the next part of his journey, which is going to Cape Town and being the academic genius that he is and how it is that his incredible journey took off from there. 702 and Cape Talk, the Literature Corner. 19 minutes after 11, we're talking to author James Brent Stein about his book, Heartbreaker, and it is about the life and times of Christian Barnard. He gets to UCT, James, and he obviously excels, and he also meets Loki. Now, talk to us a little bit before we talk about his uh, first love. Let's talk a little bit about his academic acumen, because for most people, they think Chris Barnard, they think um, of, obviously, the first heart transplant. But this is a man who was academically gifted, did research into other conditions and um, illnesses like meningitis, incredible master's thesis. um, And he had been excellent in other parts of medicine as well, not just uh, what he eventually were to become world famous for. I think uh, this was one of the first stories that when I did the research that I, I knew nothing about was his research into children's diseases and uh, his master's thesis uh, and work he did on tubercular meningitis. I mean, in- incredible work that still that changed and saved the lives probably of millions of people. I mean, medical the medical world builds on the work gone before, but there's no doubt that the foundations that he laid in some of the children's diseases still today and through all these decades have saved millions of children. Um, obviously, coming from the Karoo, uh, there were some things that he struggled with initially, I think, at university. UCT is an Afrikaans uh, kid anyway, uh, perhaps struggling with some of the language issues. And some of the some of the subjects he did struggle with initially. But once he once he got his first, he, once he was a doctor and he, 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 he started doing his, his postgraduate uh, studies, I mean, he was he was just phenomenal. He went to America. I don't know if you're going to be going chapter by chapter, but uh, he, he went to America and uh, he completed what the specialists at the Incredible. time said it was impossible because mm-hmm. he, he had to do a he first had to become a surgeon. He, he did that in America. He had to, then he had to specialize in, in cardiac surgery. Mm. Then he had to, and he still, and that time they had to learn two new languages. Mm. So he did Dutch and German. And he, when, when, he, and then they had to do their practicals. And they told him, listen, uh, this is going to take you uh, at least six years. This was when he was in, the, he did this all in America at the University of Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, and, and they said, look, you can do that. Great. But it's going to take you six years. But at the time, as a full time student at that time, he was married to Loki. They had two kids. Yes. And Loki, because they had no money, Loki had to stay behind in Cape Town with the children because he was a full-time student. So he told them, listen, I've got a family. I've only got two years. So he completed though, he completed a doctorate and a master's and his practicals, two languages, in a period of about two years and, and eight months, which Incredible. still today is a university <laughs> record. An absolute inc- – and you've got to understand, this was the Silicon Valley of – cardiac of surgery cardiac surgery at the time yeah and the guy in charge of that program said that amongst all the groundbreaking surgeons in the world who's done all the stuff that's led to where we are today in a large sense open heart surgery um, cardiac surgery treatments Christian Barnard outshone them all. It's an incredible, incredible compliment. We're going to chop, uh, chop and change across the, <laughs> our conversation just in the interest of time. So, so thank you for fast-forwarding it. And we'll dip in and out. If people want the full story, they just must go and buy the book. We can't summarize the whole book for you in one show. It's definitely worth reading and buying and owning your own copy. 
So interesting how often with research specialities, James, you accidentally find yourself getting into an area that you don't even know will be of interest to you. Um, and if I recall correctly, while he was in America, it was basically just a coincidence. You walked down the corridor, someone else asked you to come and lend a hand. Yeah. And next thing you realize, oh, shucks, maybe this is something that I'm interested in. Um, yeah. Something similar had happened to him, in fact, in Cape Town as well. So talk yeah. to us how he stumbled upon um, a, until then, inadvertent and unbeknownst to him, deep passion for cardiology. Yeah, absolutely. While he was in America, he was so the work he'd done in the in in and, and I, I actually wanted to read that just very shortly mm. that one bit because that I think was was the one but that really told me, listen, this guy was was pretty incredible, and you don't know much about him. So, before he went to America, he did research, uh, and he did it at the at the City Hospital for Infectious Diseases, which you can still visit in Cape Town today. It's a medical museum, and that place was where they treated people where there was nowhere else to go: the poor people, people with terrible diseases. And this one sentence, just out of his biography, just it just uh, it just pulled me in. So he went for the job interview, and it, when he'd done it, he walked out and he heard the sound of children crying so he walked into one mm. of the wards where they were keeping these children that were so terribly sick and the ward he entered was where the children were being treated for tuberculous meningitis which is ex the most extreme form of TB you can get and there's really nothing they could do for you uh, and it causes damage and these children are just terrible and so so this this one sentence that and I'm quoting some of the, in, in the okay let me first read this but in the ward that in the ward Christian ent encountered the steel cuts that were designed to keep the young children inside for their own safety the babies were displaying various stages of abnormality due to the ravages of this dread disease some of the, and this is a quote some of the small bodies had heads as large as soccer balls. Never in my life have I seen such human suffering. The fact that they were young children magnified the suffering. The halls of hell must surely echo with the sounds these poor children were, were making. Mm. Um, and that, that led to his research trying to help these kids. And so if, his going to America was based on his research that he, that he was doing into trying to, mm. to help these children. So he comes to America. He's there to do some research in, a, in general surgery. Um, and while he's there, he's, he's, what they did at the University of Minnesota was they did a lot of work on heart-lung machines, and they were doing a lot of research on open-heart surgery. And one day, one of the technicians in one of the research labs, they needed a hand with a machine, and Christian Barnard happened to walk by, and they said, listen, would you give us a hand pushing this machine and working this machine? The technician's not here. And he said, sure. And that led to his complete obsession with, with cardiac surgery and eventually uh, open-heart surgery and eventually mm -hmm. the heart transplant. Absolutely. Eric, hello. Hello. Hi, welcome to the show. Hi, you see this? Yes, fascinating talk. Um, I, I was a child uh, when my parents met uh, Chris Barnard in Meisner uh, and became very friendly with him. And uh, he actually taught his daughter Deirdre to ski, my dad did, in those days. I don't remember a hell of a lot about that. But then a few years later, when I was a good boy scout, uh, I was at a little jamboree at the Drill Hall in Cape Town and they had a, a movie showing about the actual transplant and he was there and uh, my mom and I reacquainted ourselves with him. It was a fascinating period in Nysna mm. and so forth. It was just, he was, a, he was a brilliant man. He really, really was. And I'm very appreciative to have met him and chatted to him and things like that. I have fond memories of that time and of course with the family. Mm. Thank you, Eric. Let's move to another Another important and obviously theme that goes to the heart, pardon the pun of the book, and that is the actual first heart transplant. Now, this reads 
like a Cold War fight between America and another part of the globe, uh, James. And again, for many of us who kind of know what he's famous for, unbeknownst to us, there was actually a bit of a race going on, uh, particularly between some of the most brilliant surgeons in America and folks elsewhere in the world, including behind the Iron Curtain. And unbeknownst to them, there was someone they were competing with in Africa. And because they render us invisible, they wouldn't even have known that there was someone else who was in the race. But paint us a picture of what was going on in the medical fraternity around that time. Because the other thing that people do not know is that actually the second heart transplant um, could easily have happened before yeah. Christians. Yeah. And in fact, the second one happened a couple of days later even. Yeah. So it was really, really, really close. Um, and we don't know that because all the Chappie's paper tells you is that he was the first one to perform it. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, incredible, incredible story. And there's a great book that I could also recommend, Every Second Counts, which which uh, was written by Donald McRae, a well-known writer from, from the UK, which depicts a bit more clearly the race between the four guys who and, and Chris Barnard who eventually did it. So absolutely, the Americans were throwing uh, billions at, at, at this idea to transplant a human heart um, it, it built on the there was a natural succession so not, surgeons across the world never really touched the human heart it was always this idea you can't work on the human heart it's where the brain lies emotions lie love lies people just didn't touch it and so until the second world war basically where all the damage that was caused and so many injured people they were still living with injuries on the heart some doctors decided we've got to try and do something for them. That led to people understanding you could actually operate on the human heart mm. successfully. So, but then they, it, it was a long period of closed heart surgery. Then open heart surgery followed. Um, but then they had the challenge of trying to stop the heart from beating while they operated on it. So it's, it's a fascinating history. Um, so, and then the next thing was, can we transplant the human heart? So, of course, the Americans, they, were, they had the, the budgets, they had the universities, they had the, the expertise. They were, they were with the world streets ahead. Um, but there were some other guys also doing it. And because of Chris Barnard's role and background at the University of Minnesota, he decided he's going to come back to Cape Town and eventually he decided he's going to transplant the first human heart. There was also a chap which was to me very interesting behind the Iron Curtain called Vladimir Demikov. Yes. A guy who's also not, I think, received a lot of uh, credit uh, through all these decades, simply because of the Iron Curtain and that whole blackout of information. A lot of people didn't really know what he was doing, mm. um, except that he was doing radical stuff. And they were kind of thinking he was this, you know, droch doctor, this <laughs> terrible uh, person doing crazy experiments. But he was actually doing a lot of incredibly hard work. And mm. a fascinating part of the Chris Barnard story mm. was his decision to go and look, look Demikov up in 1960. Now, picture that white guy. Afrikaner guy from South Africa and the, the hoops you'd have to go through the trouble you'd have to go through to visit Moscow in 1960, May of 1960, to yeah. go and search for this guy who you've heard is doing incredible breakthrough stuff and he, he actually went ahead and did it and one of the funniest Including stories Including dogs with two heads, I mean that yeah. picture was like, you know, it looked <laughs> like something out of a out of a dystopian novel. Yeah, it, it certainly does. Uh, there's a story I'll tell you quickly, you see, which isn't in the book, because you know how books work. You send out these feelings. You have to and cut your losses. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and, and, but the stories keep coming, you know. And interesting story about the dog in my book. I had to have a picture of the dog with the two heads because Chris Barnard transplanted the, heads, the dog's head successfully onto the body of the larger dog as well. But the poor little dog in this picture, he was called Romais. <laughs> and poor, yeah, this I found out quite recently. And poor Rumais, 
really went through the mill, that's the little dog, you see the head at the bottom of yes. the picture. So uh, uh, a week or two before this experiment, Chris Barnard filled rumors with poison and he, uh, the dog died. Then what he did was he took all the blood out of the animal and he put new blood, gave him complete blood transfusion, and he revived Rumeis. Wow. And Rumeis was running around perfectly fine. And a few days later, <laughs> he transplanted his head. It's, I mean, it, it reads Absolutely like it, horrific. You yeah. know, today, it wouldn't, people would be up in arms. Of course, and we're going to get to that in a yeah. second on the other side of the EWN news headlines break because <laughs> there are some interesting legal and ethical complexities here. And in yeah. fact... Uh, Chris Barnard was helped in that race against his American counterparts by the fact that they had a far more conservative set of ethical views on when someone is really dead. Yeah. Duncan, Anne and Keegan, I'm also going to take your calls in the next couple of minutes. 702 and Cape Talk, the Literature Corner. Okay, so let's speed up the conversation a little bit so we can go to the lines, James, because I now want to talk about the actual <laughs> first heart transplant. Now, this is fascinating. Firstly, in terms of the big picture, there's this wonderful philosophical debate that drew me in in the, in the book, when is someone really dead? Yeah. And the Americans had a conservative view. There was a bit more latitude in the South African context. Describe that for us so that listeners can have an understanding of, I suppose one can call it an externality that played into the favor of the Grotesquia team. So, so uh, my argument would be that the South African way of doing it was actually less draconian and more forward-looking, which wasn't the case, uh, as you said, which in America and, and Europe, uh, where they they decided that a person is dead when your heart stops beating. And the problem with transplantation, especially heart transplantation, which they wanted to do, was once the heart stops beating, it it starts dying immediately, and there's often no going back. So, and and. And and the, the the trickiness is it's you've got to do the transplant and all the connections as quickly as possible. It's difficult to to keep those organs um, alive long enough while you put patients under uh, anesthesia, all those things. So uh, declaring a patient dead when when the heart stops was a real complexity and a real problem, and that definitely put the Americans back a bit. And in later years, Barnard's greatest competitor, Norman Shumway from Stanford, actually declared that uh, that he believed that was Barnard's greatest contribution to the first heart transplant was getting the perception across the world changed that accepting the brain death as death Yes. Is, is an acceptable norm and, and, to, and that's made a big difference in organ transplantation today. So um, in South Africa basically uh, Chris went and got a lot of expertise in and, and he spoke to forensic pathologists and it, eventually it came down to the fact that the authorities had, had kept the definition of clinical death quite vague yeah. and it basically meant that it was up to the doctors to decide <laughs> if a patient is clinically dead mm. and brain death declarations were legal. So, so it, an interesting uh, difference between the, the US and of course, this wasn't just a philosophical quandary. The way it impacts also the prospects of a successful heart transplant is that if you are only dead once the heart has stopped beating, there's less opportunity in terms of the time that yeah, you have exactly. available to yeah. do the transplant. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Now, very quickly, tell us who the first person was to receive a heart and who the donor is. You very dramatically, like a good novelist, describe the day on which this happened, including a cameo appearance, which if you had scripted it, people would have said it sounds fanciful, of where the relative of the person that received the heart was actually in the vicinity of the accident that took place yeah. um, in, in Cape Town. 
Yeah, a lot, a lot of things just worked out uh, well and fortunate for, for Barnard and Grudeskir in a sense. They were lucky, uh, in a sense, because the, the accident that claimed the life of Denise Darwal. Denise Darwal was the, was the lady whose heart was transplanted. It took place about a kilometer away from Grudeskir Hospital in Cape Town. So the, the ambulance was there quickly. They could get, she, she damaged her, she had a significant head injury and she was, she, she died, was declared dead at the, at the hospital a bit later by the, the, by the, uh, the brain experts. Uh, now I can't think of the fancy word for brain. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, but De- Denise Darwell, she she was the woman who died, and her heart was used in the transplant, and it was transplanted into a into a grocer called Louis Waskansky, uh, who had been sick for for quite some time, and and there was nothing more they could do for Louis Waskansky. There was no way that that uh, that regular medicine and all the medicine that had up to that stage moved, there was no way they could do anything really to prolong his life much longer. So they they went ahead and did the transplant on him, and an interesting story and I've tweeted a photo was that Denise Darwell's kidneys were also taken out and they were transplanted into a colored boy called Jonathan Funk who was 10 years old at the time uh, and they did that operation at Carl Bremer Hospital who had been doing a lot of work on kidneys. So it's an interesting picture that people aren't aware of. I wasn't aware of it. Uh, so Denise Darwell's uh, dying actually gave hope to two different people. And then Barnard then obviously has to now tell this person that they're about to receive a heart and um, this is how the conversation goes. Um, let's actually see that, you know, if we can find his voice. The other magical thing about Dr. Chris Barnett's before your time is that his voice alone has, has got a kind of like, it's got a place in people's um, memory of him. Let's see whether we can find a little bit of that. Okay, we're waiting no longer, Barnard says. He walked out and carried on down the ward to Washkensky's room where the nurses were shaving his chest in preparation for the procedure. Is this it, Doc? asked Washkensky. Barnard nodded and asked, how do you feel? Like a boxer entering a ring without knowing who the opponent will be. Barnard said nothing. Washkansky went on. How are my odds looking, Doc? They're always changing at the last minute. Are they changing in favor or against? In your favor, Barnard said. Now that's interesting because often doctors don't want to give people false hope. But you make the point several times that one of the things that Barnard was renowned for, and partly because he had to deal himself with, for example, the effects of arthritis on him, having lost siblings at a young age, one probably from some other congenital heart condition, is the importance, despite being committed to evidence-based medicine, James, also always instilling hope in his patients. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and that's a lesson that he learned through through a lot of personal pain and agony uh, at the time that he was going to at the time he was standing at the precipice of his future he was learning to be a heart cardiac surgeon yes, this was while he was still in America yeah. he's 34 years old he gets his hands start paining in his feet incredibly he doesn't know what's going on he goes and he gets diagnosed with uh, the most extreme form of arthritis you can get imagine a surgeon with your hands, which is so critical. Mm, mm. You've got to stand for hours and you are diagnosed with something which you as a doctor know the, what it means. Mm. Now, and, and yeah, just a crazy picture. Now, racism is never absent in South African stories. In fact, this transplant might have happened even sooner, James. But of course, they decided for tactical reasons that the donor mm. must be white. Yeah, I th- there was a fear, there was a worry that uh, that if they were doing transplants on coloured and, and black patients, uh, that uh, that that the, that they would be blamed of experimenting uh, on on people. And then the irony is that no one gave a damn that a coloured person 
managed to get some of the organs harvested from the person who also donated their heart. But when the opposite happened, uh, two or three heart transplant later, yeah. then suddenly there was this uh, international story yeah. in terms yeah. of harvesting from black patients. So their fear came through later anyway uh, with the next uh, couple of heart transplants. And yet it seemed as if a white person's organs being harvested for a black person just is completely nonchalant. But the team had to truly worry about how this will play out if they were to harvest organs from a black yeah. person for a white person. Absolutely incredible. Let's go to Plumstead. Duncan, good morning. Hi. Hi, Duncan. Hello. Hi, good morning. You see this and your guest. Thank you, Duncan, I'm for calling good. and thanks for holding on. I know I made you wait. I yes, wanted to do so until we got to the part where James had described that first um, heart transplant. What do you want to say? Yeah. yeah. Um, my mom's sister husband, George Metcalf, he was the chap, he was t- totally in charge of all the electronics while the operation was on the guy. He looked after all the machines and what have you. And he, they spent hours, I think over 12 hours or something like that, just monitoring all these machines while the operation was going. Well, it was very much a team effort. And I want you to describe all the characters. When I type in James in Google, Hamilton Naki, what comes up is, was he directly involved? The unsung hero. (laughs) And um, I think one of the parts of this book that people who do not care for historical accuracy will be pissed off about is that you actually make it clear that Hamilton's role was, and there's evidence to this effect, exaggerated in what has become folklore about Hamilton and that it actually does everyone an injustice. It makes it look as if someone like Chris was slightly a fraud, but it also inadvertently detracts from Hamilton's incredible achievements, um, which have to do with a lot more than being an assistant to Chris. There's no, there's no doubt about it. I think you sum it up perfectly. And but part of another reason for me research, starting my research was that was one of the stories that I was interested in as well. I was just as, as, you know, angry and saying, what the hell, you know, how was this possible? How could they have gotten away with it? And so I was interested. So I, you know, I did my research, spoke to all the people who were still around, who were there at the time, spoke to other experts, legal experts, people who were friends with, with Hamilton. And I mean, it's, it's, it's very evident that, that he could not have been at the actual heart transplant on the evening of 2nd of December 1967. And that's what the great controversy is about. That some, There's a lot of people saying that, or some saying that, that he was there and he was involved and he was never acknowledged. So, I mean, it, 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 he was certainly not there that evening. I think it's quite clear, but it, it doesn't take away from what he managed to achieve despite his uneducatedness, his background, where he came from. I mean, he was an incredible research surgeon in the research laboratory and he certainly for decades trained a lot of surgeons who are still around today and for that matter other black and colored people who were working yeah. uh, there that weren't acknowledged and they didn't yeah. have formal education big vic is another one Isn't whose relative character? in fact absolutely was also operated on by chris barnard and their place in south african medical history needs to be it's, done uh, justice yes you know and and i, I, and I think you get that balance right because you, you you get you, you you are clear that he can't be placed there when the operation happened but you're also clear that actually on his own terms, there's an entire intellectual biography there that yes. needs to be done proper justice to. 
Absolutely. But, and, and like, I'm glad you mentioned Vic and the other, because there was a bunch of guys, and I've tweeted a photo of them as well. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you know, you, you can't, you can't d- not, not acknowledge these chaps. And uh, the fact that people know Hamilton's name is, at least, at least his name is well known. But Vic, Big Vic's name isn't known. Or Prescott Mudling Gauzy's name isn't known. Mm, uh, exactly. Guys who were there as well, and people aren't We've aware of toasted. them. And I, I certainly tried to try to bring, to, to write a bit about them. And, mm. and uh, fascinating, just fascinating guys keegan hello hi there how are you very well thank you for holding on go ahead no problem uh firstly uh, fantastic chat it's really good to hear and i look forward to reading the book um i just want to to say that my great grandfather was actually one of the very first recipients of an open heart transport by barnard um and unfortunately he did not make it off the table which is not great but at the same time, I think that it, it just goes to show that it's fantastic that even though there were some failures involved, he carried on nonetheless and truly made medical history. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 12 minutes before noon. Uh, let's take a bit of a break here. James, I didn't even ask you whether you have enough time for us to overstay your welcome <laughs> on this show because this is an intriguing story. I'm just yeah, going to sure. ask on the other side of this break one more story in relation to the transplants and how we just exploded with a media frenzy, including attempts with I, um, the second or the third one to try and get a picture sneaked out of the operating theater. And then after that, we cannot go to top of the hour, James, without talking about him. And his relationship with women. <laughs> 702 and Cape Talk, the literature corner. I don't know, Chris Barnard was something of a sex symbol. I don't know how with this accent and voice of his, but there is something about it that draws you in. I think I would have macked over him if he was into me. <laughs> it will surprise you if I tell you that it's much easier to explain to you what death is than to explain what life is. Uh, death is the presence of certain signs which indicate to the doctor that that individual is dead. And it's the same for all individuals. But life differs from individual to individual. What do you mean when you say I'm alive? What do I mean when I say I'm alive? Life is the joy of living. It's the celebration of being alive. He was very charismatic, wasn't he? (laughs) Where do we even start? Let's start, Shayman, let's start with Aramaloki. Shame. His first love, and the one scene in particular where you think, my God, this guy is callous and ruthless. Isn't it at one stage when she finds out that he's cheating on her. While don't give a, you're giving away the whole <laughs> book, by the way. You're giving away all the... All, I don't think you should give this bit away. Okay, I mean, we won't give this bit away, but... Uh, the, yeah, let's just say the good doctor that, wrestles with himself in a scene that... I think we'll have a lot of people touting, uh, touting his moral character. <laughs> yeah, it's got to. I mean, as you see, it's 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 incredible. And and the way this scene that you're talking about, which we're not going to share on air, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> the way that this is depicted in many of the books about Chris Barnard, other books written by other people, and comments and pieces about how he was an absolute idiot during that because something happens with him and loki yeah and he goes down and he addresses his peers yes it's the it's the probably the the, the biggest moment of his career mm. he's in america he's addressing the, the room full of about three thousand of the, the greatest surgeons and researchers in medical history in america but something's happened and he goes and he, he addresses them why with this weight on his shoulders none of the people in the room know what's happened and 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 the and and afterwards, he's for for decades. There's been this 
almost people animosity towards him because they say that he never credited, fully credited the Americans in the room and the other surgeons in the room who did a lot of research, etc. Yeah. My view is he had this weight on his shoulders. But the other, the other point you make on that, and we'll leave it there, of course, is that it's obvious that scientists and doctors build on each other's legacies. So, you know, they were making much of a muchness there. But he goes to Europe. He goes all over the place. He meets the Pope. He meets presidents. He becomes friends with these world-famous glamorous people. He leaves Aramaloki just to fly to Europe for a ball, for example. At the age of 47, he gets married to a 19-year-old. He just got sucked into it, didn't he? Sure. And he, and, he, and he went along with the ride. I think uh, it, it was an incredible time. I think that there was probably no rags to reach the story like none. The, 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 the element of his, the, the, the magnitude of his fame and, his, and the people, he, he met the Pope within weeks. Who, I mean, who does, who does that? President of America, President of Italy. The, the magnitude of his fame and the impact that must have had on him psychologically uh, is something, it's got to be, it's very difficult. And I think he, he, he just went, got carried away to it to a large extent. Afterwards, he decided, for, and, and soon he started thinking, you know, he, he might be above a lot of the stuff normal people are, and he can get away with a lot more stuff than people What do you think, think it can. was? Because Deneo just asked me this question here. And I don't know, I mean, part of my guess, just from even your description of some of the ethical quandaries about heart transplants, and then they meet, there was a moral at one stage was part of it because he's not classically handsome but he is certainly very attractive as a character and I think there's probably something about being the man with the golden hands that gave him a kind of incredible mystique and because the heart as an organ is across our folklore such an incredible part of our mysterious understanding of the miracle of life I wonder yeah. if that is part of what created the aura around him everywhere he went. I think it was a bit of everything. But the one thing everybody everybody said about him was his charisma. He could walk into a room and literally go up to anybody and they, and, and twist them around his pinky. Uh, he, had, <laughs> he had a charisma. That, his crooked that, pinky. So and so now you've got this incredible fame. You've got this incredible story. You've, you are this incredibly famous person, which attracts all these people towards you. Uh, plus, you've got the idea that that maybe you 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 feel I don't know you feel sick or something, and you think this guy could do something for you in that sense as well. Uh, and he's he's not bad looking. I mean, a lot of yeah. people said he was great looking. Um, yeah, but yeah, something. He's certainly was, charismatic. I mean, you, you yeah, yeah, he was a sex magnet. A last question to you, coming full circle back to you as writer, and I'll give you 40 seconds i noticed in the book that you did very well to maintain a kind of critical distance you don't have very ostentatious description of the injustices of apartheid you try not to moralize about this guy about his dad their relationship with the mom but it's not a dry book it's a fascinating life it cannot be but fascinating how did you decide on the tonal and stylistic choices for this book because it would have been very interesting um, to also write it with a different kind of voice. And you really clearly, deliberately, I think, made sure that while it's not a dry litany of facts, that you also did not use um, over-the-top adjectives and adjectival phrases everywhere. 30 seconds. 
Thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, I, I, I aimed at writing a balanced book, very balanced. Some of the previous books are, I think, a little less balanced. Um, and uh, so, so balance was important to me. Uh, and then, I mean, you know, uh, I, I like a good story. So I, mm. I think those, those two together and reading a lot. If you want to be a writer, you've got to read Absolutely. a lot. So, so I think that, that certainly influenced. So you know, you, you, read, you know what books you like, which you don't, and you use those structures and way of writing. And I think that's what I did. Eusebius, the one point, last point I want to make, which I think sums this guy up, okay, is the fact that imagine you're standing at, this guy, at the bedside page of this patient. He's, he's still alive. He's not dead yet. Well, Louis Waskansky, that first mm. heart transplant, he's still alive. Now, the big question is you're going to cut out his heart. He's still beating. He's severely damaged. He's dying, but he's still alive. You're going to cut his heart out and hope he's going to wake up again. Imagine the confidence and the daring and the guts and all the feelings you've got to have and then still decide I'm going to go ahead and do it. Absolutely. Congratulations. Club Gedaan, James Brent Stein, Heartbreaker, Christian Barnott, and the first heart transplant. Go get yourself a copy.